I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of October's book The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster published in 1928. So each month I take a book, split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel but be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to part two, The Mending Apparatus of The Machine Stops. So Vashti communicates with her son Kuno who lives on the other side of the earth through the machine. It's a bit like a modern day Zoom call. Quote, she fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people, an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse was rightly ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit. Something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. According to Vashti, the earth's surface is, quote, only dust, no life remains on it. But her son is desperate to see the stars from the earth's surface, not from below ground where they are forced to live. He's heard of the image of a man in the stars that he wants to see from the earth's surface. Underground was safer than above ground. The environment was scorched and hostile, not unlike this apocalyptic world Forster was painting. And this image of a man in the stars is interesting. Usually it is gods in the stars that make up the constellations, but perhaps the machine has such power now that it is a man that is in the stars. He wants her to join him. Quote, mother, you must come, if only to explain to me the harm of visiting the Earth's surface. Now Vashti is described as, quote, a swaddled lump of flesh, a face white as fungus and without teeth and hair. And she controls her life with buttons positioned next to her. Quote, there were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm deodorized liquid. There was the cold bath button. There was the button that produced literature and there were of course the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room though it contained nothing was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. Buttons that produced literature 110 years later and we at the moment are concerned with AI that can create art, music and literature. It's so prescient. And I like that quote about the basin which was imitation marble. Things are not real in this world. Everything is just a bit off, not quite the real thing. Now Vashti delivers a Zoom call style lecture on quote, Australian music, which lasts for around 10 minutes, a bit like a TED talk. There's an assumption that time is now so valuable that lectures have to be really short. Is form following function here and reflecting the content. It's a very short and concise novel. Vashti considers how she'll get to her son. She's going to answer the call and contemplates her journey. Quote, 
Of course, she knew all about the communication system. There was nothing mysterious in it. She would summon a car and it would fly with her down the tunnel until it reached the lift that communicated with the airship station. The system had been in use for many, many years, long before the universal establishment of the machine. And of course, she had studied the civilization that had immediately preceded her own. The civilization that had mistaken the functions of the system and had used it for bringing people to things instead of for bringing things to people. Those funny old days when men went for change of air instead of changing the air in their rooms. And yet she was frightened of the tunnel. She had not seen it since her last child was born. It curved, but not quite as she remembered. It was brilliant, but not quite as brilliant as a lecturer had suggested. Vashti was seized with the terrors of direct experience. She shrank back into the room and the wall closed up again. So this system had been used to aid humans in the past and now for some reason and somehow this machine that the humans invented has turned against them. It reminds me of the current fears of man-made AIs and whether they may take over the world and enslave humanity. Now, when she states aloud that she feels unwell, an automatic health apparatus feeds her medicine. She's almost attacked by this thing. She asks her son why he can't visit her, but he replies with, quote, I cannot leave this place because at any moment some tremendous thing may happen. So we've got a question there. What tremendous thing may happen to Kuno? Now she bumps into one other person on the way to the airship station, quote, Men seldom moved their bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. And when she looks out from the lift that takes her up to the airship, it reminds me of something from the Matrix, this machine with its tentacles into all these human souls. Quote, Beneath those corridors of shining tiles were rooms, tier below tier, reaching far into the earth. And in each room there sat a human being, eating or sleeping or, or producing ideas and buried deep in the hive was her own room. It's chilling and this machine is using these people as worker bees and Vashti's room is described in the opening as, quote, hexagonal like the cell of a bee. Here, a prison cell in slavery to the machine. Now the history of inventing machines to outrun the sun is outlined, but ultimately this science is banned by the, quote, committee of the machine because of the horrible accidents that happened. Creating machines to go faster westwards and outrun the sun, think of our modern day jets, were punishable by, quote, homelessness. So we've got an interesting question there. What does homelessness mean? Now, the narrator has promised to tell me later, so I'm hoping to find out. A beam of sunlight appears through a broken blind in this airship, quote, but the blind flew up altogether and she saw through the skylight small pink clouds swaying against a background of blue. And as the sun crept high, its radiance entered direct, brimming down the wall like a golden sea. It rose and fell with the airship's motion, just as waves rise and fall, but it advanced steadily as the tide advances. Unless she was careful, it would strike her face. A spasm of horror shook her and she rang for the attendant. The attendant too was horrified, but she could do nothing. It was not her place to mend the blind. She could only suggest that the lady should change her cabin, which she accordingly prepared to do. During this story about seeing the sun, Vashti stumbles and holds her hand out to another passenger to steady herself. And the passenger says, quote, how dare you? You forget yourself. 
The woman was confused and apologised for not having let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete owing to the machine. Humans are literally aliens to one another in the real flesh. Ian Forster has really predicted a society that I can see today based on Zoom meetings and little human interaction. It reminds me so much of the lack of human contact we had during the pandemic. Now the attendant shows Vashti mountains down below and says, quote, you must remember that before the dawn of civilization, they seemed to be an impenetrable wall that touched the stars. It was supposed that no one but the gods could exist above their summits. How we have advanced thanks to the machine. Both Vashti and her fellow passenger chant, quote, how we have advanced thanks to the machine, as if reciting an unconscious mantra. It's very spooky. So Vashti travels halfway around the world on this airship, passing over the Himalayas. There's an interesting idea on homogeneity, how the world has become similar everywhere. Quote, few traveled in these days, for thanks to the advance of science, the earth was exactly alike all over. Rapid intercourse from which the previous civilization had hoped so much had ended by defeating itself. What was the good of going to peek in when it was just like Shrewsbury? Why return to Shrewsbury when it would be just like Pekin? Now, a little of that may already have come true. Nowadays, the similarity of shops in city centres means that individual characters of these cities has been somewhat lost, although not to the extreme described here. Now, her fellow passenger comments, quote, that white stuff in the cracks, what is it? I've forgotten its name. Can they really have forgotten the name of Snow? Very alarming. Now, most of the other passengers are, quote, young males sent out from the public nurseries to inhabit the rooms of those who had died in various parts of the earth. The attendant closes the blind and Vashti mutters, quote, no ideas here and hid grease behind a metal blind. Greece, of course, the birthplace of learning, blotted out by a single blind. Vashti is literally blinded, literally as well as metaphorically, by the pernicious machine which has a control on all human thought now. Vashti and the entire human race have no ideas here. And there the first part ends. It's a very bleak and cynical view of humanity and scary, especially with the knowledge we have nowadays on global warming. It's scary to think that the world perhaps could end up being uninhabitable. Or is it just a ruse by the machine? My initial thoughts are very interesting first half. I'm eager to see what Kuno has plans for and what kind of revelation his mother is likely to have. And will they ultimately break this horrible machine that seems to represent this totalitarian regime that has the entire human race under its thumb? I wonder if the rise of totalitarian governments during this period in the 1920s was on Forster's radar as he was writing this novel. We certainly have a few unanswered questions which are very interesting. What tremendous thing may happen to Kuno? And what does this awful homelessness mean? And I wonder, will the machine continue to operate and incarcerate all these people? Now, spoiler alert, the title is called The Machine Stops. So I'm hoping that maybe the machine might not continue to act as this police state. It's very interesting that idea of the Zoom calls and just having a general idea of people. Vashi describes what we would call a Zoom call, quote, the machine did not transmit nuances of expression and it was just an outline of people that was 
good enough for all practical purposes. Vashti thinks something good enough has long been accepted by our race. And this good enough really reminds me of Howard's End, the other book that I read recently by Ian Forster, and the relative poverty of flats in comparison to houses in the book. Flats considered utilitarian and good enough for human habitation, but I certainly got the feeling that they were a second-rate abode compared to these lovely houses that Forster described, like Howard's End. Possibly a poor substitute, a necessary evil due to an increasing population, and Forster having his strong opinions about that. I'm very interested in finding out what happens in the second half of that book, and I hope you'll be able to join me. I'd like to talk about last month's book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I've since lent it to my mother-in-law who gave me the book for my birthday, so I can't quote from it directly. Now, there are some interesting comments on the internet. Meredith said, quote, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is a multi-layered novel about friendship, love, and video games. And she gave it five stars. Pippa Bailey in The Guardian said, quote, when Macbeth soliloquizes of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, he speaks of the relentlessness and futility of life. When Gabrielle Zevin employs the same words, she speaks of the possibility of infinite rebirth, infinite redemption offered by video games. In the virtual world, death is not the end and losing is but a chance to try again. There are endless chances, endless restarts. You do not have to be a gamer to see the appeal. Really reminds me of Marx's comments there. And Bill Gates said of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, quote, it resonated with me for personal reasons, but I think Zevin's exploration of partnership and collaboration is worth reading no matter who you are. Even if you're sceptical about reading a book about video games, the subject is a terrific metaphor for human connection. As Evan writes, quote, to allow yourself to play with another person is no small risk. It means allowing yourself to be open, to be exposed, to be hurt, to play requires trust and love. I've put all the links to those reviews in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading, and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of The Machine Stops in two weeks, November's two episodes will be all about Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Ilyich. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars or comment. Thank you. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of The Machine Stops in two weeks. See you then. Mm -hmm.